Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most fascinating characters in American history. Uh, someone whose name probably all of our listeners have heard of, maybe know something about, but perhaps don't know the full, fascinating, complex story of John Brown, American extremist. We're joined today by Professor Dan Monroe. Dan is a professor of history at Millican University, has been the chair at Millican for a number of years. He has also been connected with the Illinois Historical Society, leading there, and is the author of a number of important works on the 19th century, uh, on political figures of the 19th century, historical currents of the 19th century. Dan is exactly the person we need to have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and I should also add that Dan is an absolutely terrific teacher. He teaches in our uh, Ashbrook's Master of Arts in American History and Government program for teachers. He also teaches in our Teaching American History seminars on the Civil War, sectionalism, conflict, and more broadly, the 19th century, and also a terrific course on Hemingway. So we have a Renaissance man with us today <laughs> and a deep <laughs> and profound expert on the 19th century. Dan Monroe, thanks for taking the time to join us today again on The American Idea. Well, it's a pleasure to be here always, and I'm delighted to join you. And uh, thank you for that glowing introduction. Uh, I, I feel great now. I, I feel like I have all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, our listeners might not know this, but you look great too. <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> um, John Brown. Okay. A lot of people, especially our listeners, have heard of John Brown. Let me start by this question. We we know his name. We might know the song John Brown's Body. We know something about him. I think even the rock group Kansas has one of their albums, actually has <laughs> the art co album cover is John Brown, um, amazingly enough. But is there anything in John Brown's biography prior to the 1850s that would have suggested that he was going to end up at Harper's Ferry in 1859, leading a violent raid in order to start a slave insurrection? Well, I think the simple answer is no. I mean, John Brown prior to the 1850s was a bankrupt. You know, he had, uh, um, you know, he had emerged from his father's tutelage as a tanner and uh, was, um, you know, fairly successful at that. But then he engaged in land speculation as part of his, you know, kind of effort to rise in life and was caught short by the panic of 1837. And uh, after that, he engaged in an unsuccessful wool business and got, um, you know, the, which resulted in more debt. So he'd had a series of business failures and was effectively bankrupt by um, you know, the late 1840s. 
maybe early 1840s would be, uh, I think, more accurate, and never really emerged from that. So prior to the 1840s, if you looked at John Brown's life, you would characterize him as someone who had failed, who had uh, had not done very well in a developing economy with lots of opportunities to do well. Hmm. He starts out, am I right to say, his family is from Connecticut, so they're New England Yankees, and then they move west. Tell us a little bit about his childhood, his upbringing, and again, does that have any connection to what will be eventually become his militant abolitionism? This is a great uh, question. Yes, Brown is born in Connecticut. He uh, comes from uh, what might be characterized as Puritan stock. He uh, has a kind of Calvin, very, very kind of congregationalist Calvinist upbringing um, with all the baggage that goes with that. I, you know, I think it's fair to characterize him before the 1850s as kind of an Old Testament Christian. Um, he follows in his father's footsteps and becomes kind of an artisan in terms of being uh, someone who works with his hands. And he moves west to do that opening a tannery first in Pennsylvania and then in the uh, Western Reserve of Ohio. And he's fairly successful at, at being a tanner. Um, and he has two wives. One one bears him, I think, five or six children and then passes away at a very young age. Then he marries uh, the woman that he hires to uh, help with the chores around the house. Uh, he's lost his wife, and he marries her and has an, uh, additional children. I think he eventually fathers 20 children. Um, so uh, he's he's done fairly well as a tanner, but he gets involved in these business speculations I mentioned earlier and, and, and ends up in, uh, bankrupt. But for our purposes, Brown uh, dedicates himself to the anti-slavery cause. Now, his father was kind of vaguely anti-slavery, the way people in New England were. But was certainly never an activist, and uh, or in any way, you know, uh, seriously committed. Brown develops a strong commitment to the anti-slavery cause. I think it gives his life purpose amidst his perpetual business failures. And the seminal moment in his dedication to the anti-slavery cause is the death of Elijah Lovejoy. Of course, Elijah Lovejoy was the famous abolitionist newspaper editor who was publishing an abolitionist newspaper in Alton, Illinois, uh, after he was run out of St. Louis for doing the same there in a slave state, he crosses the river and comes up to Alton and, and continues his anti-slavery and, I should say as an aside, also anti-Catholic uh, activities because um, Lovejoy, like a lot of early abolitionists in, in the um, what, would, what was called the West then, but today would be the Midwest, uh, were often anti-Catholic as well. So, uh, but that's another story. But uh, Lovejoy is gunned down by the citizens of uh, Alton uh, who did not want their uh, business relationships with Southerners disrupted uh, by potentially having their community develop as a kind of anti-slavery center of activity. So they kill him. This is in November of 1837. And when the news gets to Ohio, Brown uh, famously dedicates his life in a public proclamation in a church at a memorial service for Lovejoy to the anti-slavery cause. And as time goes on, he becomes more and more zealous in that pursuit. Um, and in the 1850s, he becomes quite militant. So the Western Reserve of, of Ohio is just north of where we are in Ashland. Um, I'm just thinking of a town like Hudson which even to this day, I, I believe, in its town green, 
has a plaque in memory of John <laughs> Brown. Um, was Hudson, Ohio, was this area already abolitionist when John Brown got here? That's a great question. I, I, I think that that is uh, that Brown is part of a cusp of a wave of anti-slavery sentiment in the Western Reserve. I, uh, you know, I, th I think it predates him a little bit, but not by much. Um, and he just in, imbues and enhances, you know, that anti-slavery movement that's, uh, that, you know, is, is a highlight of that region in this period. Uh, you know, the abolition movement has gotten off the ground in 1831 with the publication of the first number of William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator. And uh, so, and it's become um, a, a social movement, although it's always important to emphasize that the abolition movement as a social movement was a tiny minority of the Northern population. Most Northerners uh, were not favorably disposed to the abolition movement. So they were always, it was always an uphill battle, of course, in the South, uh, there was no abolition movement at all. Uh, certainly in after 1832. Uh, but even in the North, uh, uh, there was strong sentiment against the abolition movement. It's something that Brown and Garrison and others fought against uh, their entire anti-slavery careers. So his did he have relations? Where was he? What was his abolition abolitionism like after 1837? Is he with William Lloyd Garrison? Is he with others like Frederick Douglass? Where does he sit in the in the panoply of, of abolitionists? It's a great question. You know, Garrisonian abolitionism emphasized pacifism, emphasized moral suasion, uh, emphasized immediatism, emphasized not being involved in politics. Brown thought that abolitionism uh, in the Garrisonian mode had failed. Uh, um, now, he develops these views in the 1840s and certainly in the 1850s, but he's always much more accepting of the necessity of violence than Garrison ever was. And it just has to be said that Brown has a profound effect on Frederick Douglass. You know, Frederick Douglass meets Brown, um, in, you know, in the late 1840s, early 1850s. And Brown, uh, you know, shares his philosophy of the acceptability of violence with uh, um, uh, Douglass. And as part of Douglas's gradual migration from Garrisonian pacifism, you know, Douglas, remember, escaped from slavery in 1838. Then he gets plugged into the abolition movement as a speaker by Garrison in 1841. And of course, he's a huge success because he's a marvelous speaker, a wonderful physical presence. But Douglas, for many years, uh, had uh, was essentially on the same page as Garrison. And he over time, by the late 1840s, he's he's in the process of breaking with Garrison, in part because he wanted to chart his own course and uh, be allowed to say something beyond just attesting to his experience of slavery at at, uh, at meetings, you know, at public uh, uh, meetings, anti-slavery meetings. But it's also because he disagrees with Garrison on uh, issues. And one of the issues uh, that he disagrees with is pacifism. You know, Brown and or uh, Douglas, in part because of Brown's influence, becomes much more accepting of the idea that slavery is probably going to die a violent death. It's not going to be solved by pacifism. The slave owners aren't going to be persuaded by Garrisonian arguments to uh, abandon their, you know, multi-thousand dollar cotton crop 
that uh, results in them living a life of luxury that uh, few in the period could imagine. I mean, I often tell students that, just to give an idea what I'm talking about, I often note that um, uh, Jefferson Davis, who of course was a future Confederate president in the Senate and also the uh, Secretary of War in the 1850s, uh, uh, had a plantation on the Mississippi River called Davis Bend that he rarely, if ever visited, it was run by an overseer. But every year, the overseer delivered Jefferson Davis a check after he sold the cotton crop of between thirty and thirty-five thousand dollars in eighteen fifties dollars. I mean, that would be equivalent to a seven-figure payoff in the days, you know, at a time when there was no income tax. So the point is that you're, you know, you're going to be hard pressed to persuade people to give up that level of of uh, profitability, that level of uh, monetary payoff. And I think Brown recognized that. Uh, Brown uh, was much more uh, open to a violent solution to the slavery conundrum and key events like the death of Lovejoy, like the uh, mini civil war in Kansas after the passage of the Kansas Nebraska Act in 1854. These things set Brown or gave Brown uh, a reason or an incentive to embrace the violence that he had preached. Uh, one of the things also, of course, that was a subject of lively debate among abolitionists at the time in the 1840s and 50s was not just pacifism versus violence, but also political engagement. Should we be engaged in politics? Should we form our own political party? Should we be part of one of the two political parties at that time, perhaps the Democrats and the Whigs, try and move them a direction? Did Brown ever get into politics in any way? He did not, but uh, like Garrett, like uh, Douglas, he felt that the uh, abolition movement should be, uh, you know, use whatever methods they could to propel the anti-slavery cause. You know, Doug, one of the key reasons that Douglas broke with uh, Garrison was that Douglas felt that eschewing politics, not getting involved in politics, was a terrible mistake. You know, Garrison's argument was, well, politics of necessity is a uh, business. Uh, wherein you have to compromise, you might get your, you might get a little grubby, you know. You might have to make some kind of a deal to get your legislation passed. You might get half of a loaf rather than a whole loaf. And Garrison's argument was, well, because slavery is such a moral evil, it's so uh, morally wrong. Uh, you you can't accept half a loaf. You know, Garrison was opposed to gradualism. Uh, you know, which of course is Lincoln's solution. Uh, you know, let's have a gradual compensated emancipation plan where we pay the owners to give up their charges, and it happens over a long period of time to prevent social disruption and tension. That was absolutely unacceptable to Garrison, and that was a political solution. Well, Brown and um, uh, uh, Douglas recognized that political involvement, you know, if you're, if you, you know, even with those the, the problem of, you know, p potentially having to compromise, not having an anti-slavery voice in Congress, not having an anti-slavery voice in a state legislature, not having an anti-slavery voice in a gubernatorial race, that's a problem. You know, if, you, if you're abandoning the field of politics to one side, uh, you know, you're abandoning an opportunity to make your case in the venues that politics offers. So, uh, you know, you have the Liberty Party get off its get, get on its legs in 1840, and you have anti-slavery congressmen in Congress all the way up to the Civil War, people like Owen Lovejoy, 
uh, in Illinois, who was, uh, you know, the brother of the martyred Elijah, uh, who was a very staunch anti-slavery slash abolitionist congressman from northern Illinois. Um, so although Brown, you know, Brown with his material uh, business failures and um, how should I put this? His kind of general flakiness, <laughs> you know, Brown, Brown was never, uh, I would say, <laughs> was never a viable a political candidate. He wasn't somebody that, uh, um, you know, who, who could make a credible case for votes. Uh, and I think Brown sees his role as being, you know, uh, being an agitator anyway. You know, Brown sees himself as an action man. Um, you know, he feels like Garrisonianism is, um, you know, kind of uh, milksop stuff. You know, it's not strong enough. Whereas he has the true medicine. You know, he's the man who's going to drive the uh, course against slavery. And in the end, you know, he comes up with that rather um, flawed, shall we say, insurrection plan. So he's the man, <laughs> the Garrisonians talk the talk, he wants to walk the walk. Um, he gets his chance right in the 1850s, because you've got the, the, the compromise of 1850, especially the strengthening of the Fugitive Slave Act, which enrages a lot of abolitionists. Then you also, as you mentioned, get the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. For some of our listeners who may not know that, what was that act and how did it precipitate what ended up being called Bleeding Kansas, where John Brown gets his maybe his first taste of anti-slavery violence? So Stephen A. Douglas, the uh, Illinois senator, the long longtime senator from Illinois and Democrat, is the chair of the Senate Committee on the Territories. And Douglas had been trying to organize the Nebraska Territory, which was the northern portion of the Louisiana Purchase, uh, for a long time. And it was constantly, his efforts were constantly blocked by Southern senators because they recognized that that region was probably going to become, in, uh, come in, you know, after the territorial phase, probably going to come in as free states. And the Southern advantage that came from the three-fifths rule uh, in terms of the Electoral College and in terms of additional seats in Congress was gradually kind of uh, being whittled away by uh, immigration that predominantly went into the North. Uh, you know, in 1860, the population of the North is 22 million and the population of the South is 9 million, to give you an idea of what we're talking about. So the upshot is Southerners didn't want to organize that Nebraska territory because out of it would come free states. In January of 1854, Douglas, I'm talking about Stephen A. Douglas, comes up with a solution to this problem. And the solution is he abandons the Missouri restriction. The Missouri restriction prohibited slavery above the southern border of Missouri which is 36 degrees, 30 minutes um, line. And everything above that was free and everything below that was slave. That was the Missouri uh, Compromise of 1820. Douglas abandons that specifically in the legislation. And the Southern senators like David Atchison from Missouri were delighted. And so they support the organization of Nebraska, but they ask that the territory be divided into two territories now, Nebraska and Kansas territory, which Douglas also accedes to. So that's the legislation. It passes the Senate. There's a long House debate. Meanwhile, Douglas has enlisted uh, Franklin Pierce, Frederick uh, or Stephen Douglas. I'm talking about elicits Franklin Pierce's support, and he makes it a Democratic Party measure. Uh, and so, in other words, if you were uh, going to be a loyal Democrat, you had to support it. 
and it passes by June of 54th, the law of the land. This this leads to uh, tremendous consequences. The Democratic Party fragments over this. Northern Democrats are very upset, or a certain faction of them, and actually leave the party. And there's a formation of an anti-Nebraska coalition that's made up of Democrats who are upset with Kansas, Nebraska, with Whigs who really don't have a party anymore because the Whig party's kind of fizzled out after the 1852 election, uh, and free soilers and nativists. They're all ticked off uh, about the Kansas-Nebraska uh, passing. And this coalition becomes the Republican Party in 1855. Meanwhile, while this kind of political turmoil is going on, meanwhile, settlers from the North and the South are flocking into Kansas, some of them uh, imbued with the idea that uh, you know, they should uh, uh, turn Kansas into free state and, the, and counterparts from the South, and particularly Missouri, who are migrating in to make it a slave state. You know, by virtue of leaving the question, this was the other angle to the bill, was that Douglas, Stephen Douglas argued that the question of slavery will be determined by popular sovereignty or to let the people of the territories decide. So you've created this condition for both sides to flock into that region and try to claim it for their own, and eventually they start fighting. One more thing to mention about this act is that after the Kansas-Nebraska at the Democratic Party, it's still a national party, but it's increasingly dominated by the South, by Southern political figures, because many Northern Democrats had abandoned the party and had joined this anti-Nebraska coalition that eventually forms uh, or turns into the Republican Party, the Republican Party that exists to this day. Mm -hmm. So when settlers are pouring in, because as you say, whoever gets the most uh, people there and there's a vote, they can decide whether it's going to be a slave state or a free state. With settlers pouring in, so John Brown leaves from the east, heads west uh, to engage in what? Does he think that he's going to go there and do politics? Does he think there needs to be violent solution? What's John Brown's plan to when he gets there? It's a great question. And uh, Brown had this, of course, immensely large family. <laughs> and some of his sons had decided that they were going to go to Kansas and help make it a free state. You know, they were committed to the anti-slavery cause just like their father was. So his sons, uh, six of his sons migrate to Kansas. And then Brown decides to follow along, I think somewhat reluctantly. You know, by this time, uh, Brown is, 50, you know, in his mid-50s, 55 years old, uh, you know. Um, uh, and, and he, you know, he's by the, um, uh, you know, by the, <laughs> by the standards of the time at age 55 and 1855 is old, you know, he's an old man, but he goes anyway, he's committed to the anti-slavery cause and he joins with his sons and inevitably when the fighting starts and there's, you know, the kind of typical, uh, nasty kind of guerrilla warfare, kind of atrocities, bushwhacking, sniping one side at the other, and then eventually open warfare and the formation of militia units fighting against each other, free state and pro-slavery settlers. Uh, Brown gets heavily involved in that and, and um, is uh, kind of given the rank of captain. He's referred to as Captain Brown um, and leads men against uh, pro-slavery forces. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, 
This is John Moser, Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. At the time, I think there's a phrase, John Brown's Bibles. Yeah, right. What's yeah. that? So the uh, some of these anti-slavery societies, like the New England Immigrant Society, were sending um, guns uh, and uh, which and the which of course was illegal. You were supposed to be sending you know lots of guns, and the um, uh, federal government was trying to police some of the things that were coming in. So to to uh, well well they did a very poor job obviously, but um, to kind of secretly bring arms in, they would uh, put these pack the rifles in cases that were labeled John Brown's Bibles, you know, or Bibles simply. Um, so when, you know, when they opened them up and found, you know, firearms and they said, well, here, here's more of John Brown's Bibles and Brown was actually involved in the resistance to the, um, the pro-slavery movement. And, um, as you know, um, engaged in, uh, actual open murder of, uh, pro-slavery settlers. Yeah. Tell us about that and his involvement directly, not just supporting the anti-slavery militias, uh, in their fight supplying them with weapons, but actually himself engaging in conflict and in fact, killing people. Yes, Brown, you know, he's he's leading this kind of uh, a rump militia group uh, that includes his sons. And in the wake of the caning of uh, Charles Sumner, you know, Charles Sumner in May of 1854 was caned uh, by a Southern Congressman on the floor of the U.S. Senate, that is to say beaten. Because he'd given what uh, offense uh, when he uh, a, a gave a speech criticizing slavery and referred to his colleague Andrew uh, P. Butler, who was a senator from South Carolina, um, you know, in a, in what was regarded as an insulting way. He basically said that Butler was uh, in love with a harlot and the harlot was slavery. Well, a harlot was a uh, antibiotic term for pro a prostitute. So in consequence, uh, Butler's uh, cousin, relative, uh, Preston B. Brooks, who was a House member, walked across to the Senate and, and assaulted someone on the floor of the Senate with a cane, beating him over the head, causing a concussion and, and uh, generally scandalizing the entire United States. Brown hears about this, and he's incensed. And there's some other things going on, uh, on the, by, by pro-slavery forces in Kansas, too, that also... Uh, uh, you know, gets his blood up. So in May of 1854, Brown and his uh, sons and some of their Confederates went from along uh, uh, pro-slavery settlers' cabins along Pottawatomie Creek in Kansas, 
and pulled five men out of their cabins in the middle of the night and, and uh, killed them, hacking them up with broadswords, shooting them. Um, you know, it was uh, you know, referred to through history as the Potawatomi Massacre. Um, this is the beginning of Brown's reputation for ruthlessness, you know, for a willingness to shed blood, uh, which I think was well-deserved. I mean, it was pure cold-blooded murder. There's no other way to characterize it. I mean, Brown, you know, murdered people in uh, along Potawatomi Creek, and there's no kind of silver lining to that. Uh, soon after that, there's a big battle between pro-slavery militia and Brown. I think the pro-slavery militia attempted to kill Brown and wipe him out at the Battle of Osawatomi. And Brown manages to survive, although one of his sons is killed in the fighting. And in the wake of that, Brown leaves Kansas um, I think in part because his reputation was such in Kansas that it was probably safer for him to get out for a while. But also, he wants to take some of these um, uh, exploits and go back to New England and do some fundraising for the anti-slavery cause. And he's also, uh, you know, kind of germinating or thinking about this plan of his to lead a slave insurrection in the South. So after he leaves Kansas... In, in the mid 1850s, then he heads back east, as you say, he starts ruminating on this plan. Tell us about the the plan, the thing for which he's probably most famous: the raid in 1859 on Harper's Ferry. Yeah, it's it's somewhat analogous to the uh, kind of the Spartacus uh, revolt in uh, ancient Rome, where Spartacus, uh, the uh, slave, led a, led a revolt of gladiators, and they went from uh, Roman estate to Roman estate and freed, killed, killed all the Romans and freed the slaves, and then eventually formed a slave army that in the end was crushed um, you know, by uh, a massive uh, army of Roman legions. Brown thought uh, that he could do something similar, that if he could get uh, go into the south, uh, he could lead, he, he could arm the slaves. He would be, he would be kind of a, um, a rallying point for the slaves. So if he could go to the South and get arms, the slaves would leave their plantations and rally to them, to him. And then he would take them up into the mountains. And, and over time, he would form this kind of slave army. And at his trial, Brown denied that he was engaged in a kind of bloody insurrection. His argument was that just by virtue of creating this force that would be up in the Appalachian mountain change, it would a, a kind of unassailable force. He would draw these slaves to them, and slavery as an institution would be untenable and would kind of collapse of its own weight. Um, I think the fact that uh, you, you know that uh, um, it may be more realistic to, to suggest that Brown did intend to leave it, lead a slave insurrection, uh, despite what he said at his trial. Um, but none, none of it, I mean, the, his entire conception was flawed from the beginning. Uh, you know, his choice of, uh, locations for the insurrection, Harper's Ferry, uh, is, as Frederick Douglass characterized it as a perfect trap. Uh, indeed, Brown meets with Frederick Douglass before the uh, raid and tries to convince him to go along with it. And, and, and Frederick Douglass declines because he says, you know, you're just going to get yourself killed. It's, it's not going to work. Uh, but he does enlist support. You know, you were talking about his tour of New England. He does enlist support from um, a number of New England abolitionists, leading figures who give him money and 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 house him and feed him and and give him venues to give 
anti-slavery speeches. Now, he doesn't precisely uh, lay out in, in a public setting what he plans to do. Uh, it's just kind of vague support for his, you know, his anti-slavery crusade. But it's clear that this is what he intended uh, and had this conception for a long time. Let me just say kind of parenthetically before I shut up and and let you ask another question. Um, John Stauffer has written a fabulous book on Brown and the abolition movement. And one, one of Stauffer's argument is uh, that Brown had was making a conscious attempt to internalize a black identity. That is to say, Brown wanted, was very sympathetic to the anti-slavery cause, was sympathetic to black people, black Americans in slavery, and so much to the point that Brown consciously tried to put himself in the place of black people. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think I think Brown, you know, Brown was so sympathetic to uh, black Americans that he welcomed them into his home, referred to them as Mr. and Mrs., which very few white men or white people in general did uh, to black Americans in this period. I think that's part and parcel of why he was so zealous, was that uh, he had this overwhelming overwhelmingly uh, a sympathetic view of black Americans and indeed to the point of uh, attempting to identify with them. What happens then on that fateful day in 1859? So Brown takes 22 men and they hole up in a farmhouse near Harper's Ferry, which is the location of a federal armory. Uh, on the evening of October the 16th, uh, they assault the armory, which is guarded by just some hapless watchman. Uh, but uh, and so they take it over. The armory does have modern weaponry, uh, but Brown um, didn't uh, uh, cut the telegraph lines. Uh, he allowed a train that was steaming into town to steam back out of town. So the alarm was given, and Harper's Ferry was quickly surrounded by Virginia militia. Now keep in mind that Virginia had gone through a slave revolt in 1831, the uh, Nat Turner Revolt. Uh, which was a very bloody revolt and it was suppressed ruthlessly after a month and so uh, and it terrorized the white south the fact that the revolt actually got off the ground and you know Ned turner and his men you know killed whites 55 of them but the upshot is virginia had been preparing for this <laughs> for, for this eventuality for 30 years and now brown comes along and you know seizes the armory and so the, once the alarm is given, the Virginia militia were piled into that town as they'd been prepping to do for decades. And they quickly surround the engine house um, where Brown is located with his men and he's, he's cut off. There was a possibility for him to leave early on, but he chooses not to. Lots of historians argue that uh, Brown is consciously choosing martyrdom. Um, I'm not so sure simply because... Um, you know, it's it's hard to say with any, uh, you know, definitively. It's you know, it's I'm always reluctant to to uh, argue that I know what a dead person is thinking, <laughs> absent <Right>. some, <laughs> you know, absence of piece of paper. You know, if Brown had written down, well, I didn't leave the engine house because I'm choosing martyrdom. Well, I, I'd go with that, but we don't have that. It, it you know, you can infer that from his actions. But, uh, you know, it's hard to come to the definitive conclusion, at least in my view. But the upshot is he's surrounded in that engine house by Virginia militia, and his position is untenable. So he surrenders, or is captured, it's captured and, yeah. um, and is put on trial. 
at his trial, you mentioned some of the things he already said. Was he unrepentant at his trial? Yes, he was. I mean, Brown's, uh, uh, I think Brown's trial is one of, leads inexorably to his apotheosis in, in the North. Uh, he uh, uh, essentially argues that he is acting in a kind of Christ-like way. He's sacrificing himself for to uh, expatiate the bur- the sin of slavery to to um, to try to save black Americans from bondage. He had engaged in this effort and he had failed, but he was perfectly content to die because the cause in which he had failed was a noble one. Uh, so he adopts this almost Christ-like persona. You know, he's he had attempted to expatiate or eliminate this sin, and he had failed. So now he's giving his life, and uh, and and Brown um, gives a memorable address. You know, uh, he's there's a court proceeding. It's handled by Virginia at its insistence, although he was. Technically, the federal government should have tried him since he had, uh, you know, uh, attacked a federal uh, installation. But Buchanan, uh, the feckless James Buchanan, uh, hands it off to the governor of Virginia, Henry Wise. They prosecute under Virginia's treason laws. And uh, so they have this rather speedy trial, and Brown is convicted and sentenced to death. So he's allowed, of course, to speak at the sentencing portion of the trial, and he gives this memorable address in which he argues that as a Christian, uh, he was following the admonishment to aid the poor, to assist the downtrodden. Um, It's a a very New Testament uh, address and touches on the themes of Christ's life, uh, that you have an obligation as a Christian to to help those who um, are at the bottom of the social ladder. And that goes all out into the United States, it's broadcast across the country, and strikes a ready tone with people in the North already fired up from uh, the revivalism of the Second Great Awakening, you know, that coursed over the country um, over the preceding uh, 30 years. So, you know, when Brown is hung on December the 2nd, 1859, you have Northern churches ringing their bells. Uh, in acknowledgement and tribute to his death and mourning. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, e- even uh, a kind of mainstream uh, Whig-turned-Republican like Abraham Lincoln uh, had to acknowledge that, um, you know, uh, Brown's death was regrettable, although also his course in choosing violence was regrettable as well. Um, so Brown has, uh, and the consequences of this are immense. I mean, the fact that the North... Uh, in part in response, I think, to Brown's uses, use of Christian imagery, the fact that the North paid tribute to him enraged the South, uh, absolutely enraged the South. Uh, you know, to them, uh, if you look at Southern newspapers in the period, they're erupting uh, at, uh, at the fact that the North was lionizing Brown. You know, here's, here's a man who, who was leading slaves to cut our throats, and the northern response is not to condemn him, but to celebrate him. So uh, David Potter makes the point in his magnificent book, uh, The Impending Prices, Crisis, uh, which is on the run-up to the Civil War. Uh, Potter makes the point that after Brown's raid, southern unionism 
declines precipitously. And I think he's exactly right. I mean, you see, you see, you see Southern newspapers in the wake of Brown's raid that had been staunchly unionist in their editorials now writing, well, maybe this whole union is just too damn dangerous. You know, this whole union with the North may be hazardous to us because the North is full of John Brown's who are trying to lead a slave insurrection to kill us all. So the consequences of Brown's raid are immense. They damage Southern unionism in a way that I think becomes uh, irrevocable. It doesn't, doesn't ever recover. Um, and gives the, gives the false impression that the North is full of John Brown abolitionist types. So that when Lincoln wins election, you know, the, 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 act, the, the following year, for God's sakes, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, a calendar year later, um, he's not, even though his entire life is one big argument for moderation on slavery, on a, you know, on a, a moderate anti-slavery approach, Lincoln is viewed as this dangerous radical because of the uh, impression that John Brown has left. So, and one of the things that Brown says, I think, at his the speech that you mentioned that he gives at his trial is that he became convinced that s- slavery would only be purged away with blood. And some people have said that's Brown's prophecy of the Civil War. Um, Based on what you're saying, is it too much to say that John Brown is one of the causes of the U.S. Civil War? I I think that's perfectly accurate. Uh, That's what I argue in my Civil War class. Uh, And that's right. I mean, that's that's one of his uh, statements that kind of echoed through the ages and and had a profound effect um, at the time. You know, uh, you know, Brown's prediction that slavery was going to die a brotherly death, which, of course, uh, was very prophetic. But, yes, I think, you you, you know, my view is that Brown, uh, like Potter, I agree, uh, Brown had such a profoundly negative effect on Southern unionism um, that, uh, you know, he, he helped propel the country into war the following year when Lincoln is elected. Now, it has to be said that the Democratic Party in 1856 had had consciously adopted an effort to tar the Republican Party as in favor of uh, racial equality, which it was not. You know, the Republican Party was in favor of uh, resisting the expansion of slavery, but not necessarily racial equality. There were some Republicans who were in favor of racial equality, but there were many who were not. But the Democratic Party made a conscious effort of suggesting that that's exactly what the Republican Party was out about. They referred to the Republican Party as the Black Republican Party in an effort to make that link. They started doing this in 1856, and they continued to do this uh, really uh, all the way into and through the Civil War. So when, you know, you've, in other words, the Democratic Party has created this, is attempting to create a public perception of the Republican Party as dangerously radical on race issues. Then you have John Brown (laughs) come along and uh, lead a slave insurrection in freaking Virginia. And the, and Northern churches are ringing their bells in mourning and people like Henry David Thoreau are writing articles and, and Ralph Aldo Anderson uh, are writing articles in tribute to Brown and, and suggesting that he's an angel of light. So that, you know, you talk about consequences. I mean, from the Southern uh, perspective, and you know, I am in no way in sympathy with the Sessions movement, as everybody who's ever had me knows. Uh, but from the Southern perspective, what they're seeing 
suggests a radicalism that on uh, slavery and on race equality that really doesn't exist in the northern majority. But Brown helped aid that perception. Brown, uh, throughout his life, the, 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 this episode is entitled American Extremist. We've talked a lot about the extremism <laughs> of John Brown. <laughs> yes. What about the Americanism of John Brown? You talked a lot about how his abolitionism was rooted in his Christianity. Was it also rooted in other American ideas or principles or documents like the Declaration of Independence? Well, this is a great question, and and I think the answer is yes. I mean, Brown famously says that there are two things that uh, uh, he he would rather die than give up, and those are the Declaration of Independence and the Bible. Uh, you know, my Christianity and the Natural Rights Creed; those were things were central to his existence. So this is this, of course, uh, begs the question: uh, Should we celebrate Brown? Is he a terrorist? Uh, who should be condemned, or is he someone who is leading an anti-slavery crusade that was long overdue um, because slavery was antithetical to the natural rights republic that the founders set up? And uh, I, I think the answer is, uh, uh, you know, is an ambiguous one. I mean, there's no doubt that Brown committed murder at Pottawatomie Creek. I mean, they went out and they dragged poor slavery uh, settlers out of their cabins in the middle of the night and hacked them up, uh, which was an act of murder. On the other hand, Brown was engaged in a noble endeavor. I mean, he was he was engaged in a fight against an archaic, brutal institution that had passed its expiration date, and that Garrisonian abolitionism, uh, abolitionism had really failed uh, to do anything about. So in some respects, Brown is perfectly um, consistent with the American credo of uh, liberty over tyranny, of uh, liberty over oppression, uh, or uh, uh, liberty over exploitation. Um, and I think he recognized that. I mean, his fealty to the Declaration uh, certainly is consistent with Thomas Jefferson's uh, argument uh, that the tree of liberty has to be uh, watered with blood uh, on occasion. Uh, Brown, that, that, that's a sentiment that Brown would certainly agree with. If our listeners want to get to know John Brown even more deeply after this really wonderful conversation, what do you recommend that they read or watch? There's a wonderful biography of John Brown uh, that David S. Reynolds did uh, that I highly recommend. John Stauffer's book, on the abolition movement, it's called the Black Hearts of Men. And what he means by that, he's just describing white people who were uh, identifying with the plight of black Americans in bondage is is very good. Those are two excellent books uh, that I recommend. Uh, there's also the American Experience uh, documentary, uh, John Brown's Holy War, uh, that uh, PBS did at the beginning of the century. I think it's 2002, 2003. So it's 20 years old, but it holds up very well. I show it in all my classes. I uh, show it in the sectionalism class um, uh, for the Maggie program at, at Ashland. Uh, and the teachers love it. Uh, you know, they, they go and use it in their own classes. So those are, uh, those are th uh, things that you can consult if you're interested in learning more about John Brown. And, and they're all richly rewarding. Fascinating. What, a, what an amazing, interesting, complex 
human being John Brown was. Dan, thanks for taking the time to help us get to know him and his significance a little bit better. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to be part of the Ashbrook Center. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.